This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Today, we'll look at Elizabeth Warren and her presidential campaign. For years, she's been talking about how the political system is rigged by the rich and powerful. But suddenly, her position seems to have become mainstream for the Democrats. George Zornick has our report. And we'll talk about movement politics with Michael Walzer, about strategies and tactics and issues and campaigns. His new book is Political Action, A Practical Guide to Movement Politics. But first, the time is right politically for a Green New Deal. Trump Watch starts right now. For that, we turn to Michelle Goldberg. Of course, she's a columnist at the New York Times and an MSNBC contributor. We see her a lot with Chris Hayes. She's also co-host of the podcast The Argument, and she's an award-winning and best-selling author. She's written three books on politics, religion, and women's rights. She's also written for The New Yorker, The Guardian, and The Washington Post, and she was a senior contributing writer at The Nation. Michelle Goldberg, welcome back. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, you have a great idea about how to understand what's happening in American politics. What we are seeing in Trump's presidency is not the end of democracy, as some of our friends have suggested. Instead, we're seeing the end of a political cycle, the one that began in 1980 with Reagan. And now it's time for something new. I think that that might be true. And I've taken a lot of comfort in the last few months from the Yale political scientist Stephen Skronik, um, whose name I may or may not be pronouncing correctly, but whose work basically posits this idea of political time. Obviously, there's you know the sort of time that unfolds linearly. But he he's a presidential historian, and when he surveys the American presidency, he sees political time unfolding in cycles. So a president will kind of create a new as he calls it, regime, which, you know, a new relationship between people and their government, a new conception of what the American government does, a new sort of set of ideological commitments that are translated into what passed for common sense in the society at large. And you have, you know, a few of these really kind of historic, epic-defining presidents, and then the presidents who come after them of both parties are sort of in reaction to the existing regime, right? So the presidents who come after either seek to uphold the ideological commitments of what he calls reconstructive presidents, or they push back against them but are still operating within the same, within the framework that they established. And then eventually these kind of dominant regimes like calcify and are riven by sectarianism and infighting and corruption. And then it's time for a new kind of quote, reconstructive president who can sweep the old away. And from my understanding of his work, it's not that this is necessarily prescriptive, right? It's not that he's necessarily saying that this is inevitably going to happen, but he makes a pretty good case that this is how politics have unfolded throughout the American experiment. And I think if you take his work seriously, it offers a hopeful vision because then it means that rather than nearing the end of the republic, you can see... Trump as being like the terminus of the Reagan regime and all of the assumptions of Reaganism that have governed our politics, whoever has been in power, you know, the necessity of low taxes, the primacy of the market, all these sorts of things, you can see these governing assumptions 
reaching their endpoint, which could potentially create an enormous opportunity for a kind of a new vision and a whole new ideological governing framework. Well, people who hold the the opposite view, one of them is our friend Ari Berman. He has this thing about how democracies die, and he has the list. The list is a frightening one. Democracies die because of demonizing immigrants and minorities, because of unconstitutional national emergencies, because of attacks on a free press, suppressing votes, extreme gerrymandering, election interference, rigging the census, all of these characteristics of the Trump era suggests we're headed in a very dark direction, uh, I'm sure. Oh, and I think that could absolutely be true. I mean, you know, like I said, I sort of go back and forth, and I would say that that sort of, you know, how democracies die, that framework is how I've been thinking about the Trump administration since it began. And I'm reading this really fascinating book that's going to come out in a couple of months. It's a series of letters, a kind of ongoing argument between two constitutional law professors as they're debating this very subject whether we're sort of reaching the end of the regime or a potential new beginning. And to me, they're both very persuasive, right? One of them, um, Sanford Levinson, makes the argument that basically inherent flaws in the Constitution have brought us to this terrible path in which kind of democracy itself is really endangered. And I think, and then the other one, Jack Balkin, makes the argument that we're actually seeing the unfolding of political time and is much more, and is not much more, but is more optimistic. And I go back and forth. I feel like it could, it could sort of go either way. But if there is a way forward, part of that way forward has to be a new, broad, optimistic vision that both can inspire people and sort of meet these broad existential challenges. And the leading one right now is the Green New Deal. It's a historic opportunity for political renewal coming up in 2020. The efforts are underway right now to shape what could become the new common sense. And those ideas are that we need to take action now to slow climate change. We need to reduce inequality and guarantee good jobs. That's what the Green New Deal is about it certainly fulfills the requirements of the start of a new political era. Right, and I think that what they have, I think that what the people who created the Green New Deal have accurately understood is, well, first of all, that climate change is this terrifying catastrophe that's bearing down on us. And it's hard to inspire people with fear, even though fear is really warranted in this case. And so I think that one of the most innovative things they've done is yoked the response to climate change to a vision of kind of economic rebirth yes. and, you know, turns it into an opportunity. And I think that they're correct that if you're going to fundamentally transform the economy, which is this huge kind of almost inconceivable task, but is also sort of the minimum of what climate change requires of us, then you need to provide a much thicker safety net for people, that people can only kind of tolerate these sorts of risks and changes if their material needs are taken care of. Now, the opposition to the Green New Deal includes not only the climate change deniers, the whole Republican Party, but there are sort of people who are skeptical of the Green New Deal ever becoming law. They say, 
we've forgotten that politics is the art of the possible. But but you suggest that the sense of what is possible is changing. Well, right. I mean, I think it could be changing. And so I kind of, I sort of understand both sides of this debate, right? I, I understand those Democrats who are, first of all, skeptical that this is possible because it is an absolutely enormous, almost unprecedented task that the proponents of the Green New Deal have set for themselves, right? I mean, I think it's a necessary task, but nobody should fool themselves about the scale of it. And then also just there's a lot of people, and I'm one of them who've grown up in a political environment that's been defined by right-wing backlash. And people aren't wrong to kind of have drawn lessons from the political experiences of their lifetime, which has been one of constantly putting the left on the defensive, sort of one step forward, two steps back. And so I I think it's hard to fault people for operating within those parameters. But I also think that, again, in part because both the Trump presidency is such a calamity, and then because of the even far greater calamity of climate change, that thinking within the old parameters isn't enough anymore. And the voting population is changing in some dramatic ways that have a lot of bearing on what we think of as possible. Right. And I think in the past, progressives have maybe put a little bit too much stock in demographic inevitability, right? A lot of us have believed that the emerging democratic or the emerging progressive electorate would sort of inevitably carry us forward. And then Trump happened. And, you know, granted, Trump didn't win the popular vote. But nevertheless, we sort of see the our political system places limits on the transformative potential of this emerging electorate. And so I guess the question is whether these demographic changes can eventually overcome things like gerrymandering, overcome things like the small state bias in the Senate and the you know disproportionate power that small states have in the Electoral College. It's becoming increasingly difficult for Republicans to win the popular vote in a presidential election. It's the reason why you see the things that Ari was talking about, you know, the reason why you're seeing restrictions on voting rights and all sorts of efforts to curb democracy. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, it's, it's not clear to me how much Republicans can actually hold back the tide of generational change, right? I mean, eventually, the young people are going to replace us, and the young people um, are far more progressive than older generations, um, are far more inclined to social democracy, and also for obvious reasons are far more um, alarmed about climate change. You know, they have a lot more to lose. Your New York Times colleague, uh, Ross Douthat, noted on the Argument podcast that you do together that virtually every one of the Democratic presidential contenders has pretty much endorsed the Green New Deal, that no leading Democrats in the presidential primaries have distanced themselves from the Green New Deal. That's I think he's right that that's pretty significant. I think it's astonishing that this idea that was basically kind of cooked up by a group of insurgent progressives in just the last, I think, not even a year, has now become a framework for the entire Democratic Party to think about the future. And, you know, it is just a framework, right? I don't think that every Democratic presidential candidate has signed on to this, even the specifics of the Green New Deal resolution. I think there's there's a lot to kind of legitimately quibble with about some of those 
specifics and some of the areas of emphases. But I think the power of the idea as a framing device, you can see you can see its power both in the fact that all these Democratic candidates are signing on to it and in the fact that I think even people who oppose it are then sort of putting forward their own version of what a Green New Deal would look like. And, you know, once you're arguing about what the Green New Deal yes. would look like or yes. should look like, the people who've come up with this concept are you know, sort of winning by definition. And yet you say that what is necessary on climate change is still beyond our sense of the possible right now. Explain that, please. I just read a lot of people. I just read David Wallace, Wallace Wells' book, The Uninhabitable Earth. And if you think about the economic um, transformations that would be necessary, even to keep climate change within, I think, like a two-degree Celsius rise, which in itself would herald like a transformation of life on Earth. We would just need to change our transportation system, change our energy system. I mean, it would just require the sorts of enormous social and economic transformations, transformations that would be difficult in a sort of unified functioning society and that are almost inconceivable in a society as divided and riven with misinformation as ours is. Michelle Goldberg, you can read her column at the New York Times op-ed page. You can listen to her on the Argument podcast. Thank you, Michelle. It's great to have you on the show. Great. Thank you so much. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. When Elizabeth Warren announced that she was running for president, she called for fundamental change on behalf of working people and argued that Donald Trump is, quote, just the latest and most extreme symptom of what's gone wrong in America. Then she proposed a tax on wealth, not just on income, and she came out with an impressive proposal on universal child care. For comment and analysis, we turn to George Zornick. He's the nation's Washington editor. George, welcome back. Hi, John. Great to speak with you. Well, Elizabeth Warren has been talking for a long time about how the rich and powerful have rigged our system, but her position suddenly seems almost mainstream in the Democratic Party. Or am I wrong about that? Well, I think a lot of Democrats would like you to think that it's mainstream, um, and I do think it's obviously the direction that the party is moving. But I think, uh, you know, there's a reason Elizabeth Warren is a lot further and a lot more substantive on particularly on issues of anti-corruption and campaign finance than a lot of her other fellow Democrats are, and I think that's because she's just been there from uh, from the beginning. And so what I mean by that is, is more substantive. You know, every Democrat now is swearing off corporate PAC checks, so money from political action groups that uh, are, are affiliated with a big corporation. And so certainly uh, that is a validation of a lot of this sort of uh, anti-corruption stuff that Warren has been on about for several years. You know, hers is a little bit different because, as I'm sure you've heard, she has also forsworn just recently in-person high-dollar fundraisers, which are kind of a staple of how campaigns raise money. The corporate pack checks that everyone is forswearing, while important and a, and a good symbolic move, 
campaigns really get a very small fraction of their money from from checks written by corporate PACs. I think it's certainly true that the Democratic Party is is taking sort of money in politics much more seriously, though I think it's also fair to say that Warren is a little bit ahead of the pack on that. So let's review the history here for a minute. She was Obama's biggest critic on the left, especially in the aftermath of the financial crisis of uh, 2008, especially on helping people who were trying to avoid foreclosure. Remind us about that. Yeah, so that was kind of her first big arrival in Washington was chairing uh, the oversight committee that was looking into the TARP money that, that the Bush administration and then the Obama administration shoveled over to the, to the big banks after the crisis. So this was a big this was a big job. Now Warren really made it something interesting because really all the statutory power that she had or that her committee had was to write reports. That was their only job was to write a report every thirty days. But she used that oversight and the hearings that, that led into those reports to really kind of shape public perception of what was happening in the bailouts, who was getting helped and who wasn't getting helped. And at various times in it, because of the things that, that she wrote, there were big kind of big readjustments to some of the paybacks that the banks made. And it, it put her in this very visible role that also led her to directly confront it several times, Timothy Geithner, who Obama appointed as Treasury Secretary. I remember that we wanted Obama to nominate her to be head of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, and he didn't. And that was a big defeat for for us. Why didn't that happen? Well, you know, Obama had kind of a two-step with that. When when they were first getting the CFPB off the ground, there was, in the language of Dodd-Frank, there was to be someone at Treasury who uh, would would basically help set the agency up, and that is actually a role that he appointed Warren to. But then it became time to nominate a permanent director, and that was important because the CFPB would have no force of law, according to Dodd-Frank, until a permanent director was confirmed by the Senate. So there was a huge battle, which you may remember, uh, back in uh, late 2011, early 2012, of... A lot of progressive groups wanted Warren nominated to be the permanent head of the CFPB. She, I mean, she writes in her book that, that she, she wanted the job. It wasn't really a secret. What was coming back in the other direction was unanimous opposition from Senate Republicans, unanimous opposition from Wall Street, and from within Obama's own administration, some pretty staunch opposition from people who, who kind of came out of the, the Wall Street sector. So you're thinking people like Geithner himself and... Larry Summers and, and others who are rumored to really be against Warren's nomination. So, you know, so a lot of times when people talk about, well, Obama did this or that, you really have to look at the, the whole administration. And there were people in the White House, like Valerie Jarrett and, and David Axelrod, who were arguing for Warren. But ultimately, he went with Rich Cordray, who did who did serve nearly a full term as CFPB director. You know, it's funny, it, it almost kind of worked out it, it was a win-win situation in the end, although progressives were, were fairly upset at the time. But Cordray, number one, was, was a very strong director who was, by most accounts, pretty tough on the financial sector when it came to consumer finance. And then, of course, the, the great irony is that if Wall Street wanted to get rid of Elizabeth Warren, they should have had her be the head of the CFPB because she would just be finishing her term now or would have just finished it. She would never have run for Senate. I doubt strongly that she'd be running for president right now. So it was kind of an own goal, I guess I would say, by the by the financial sector there. Let's talk about this year and this year's the primary. How does Elizabeth Warren distinguish herself from 
Bernie in this primary season? Well, she's been very direct about the fact when asked that, that unlike Sanders, she does consider herself a capitalist. And I think that though they both uh, would have ultimately very similar administrations in terms of how they treated the financial sector and, and what they did on healthcare and so on, she's much more of, uh, I guess, an inside-the-system reformer. She wants to make, as she explains it, capitalism work better. She wants much stronger regulation. She wants monopolies broken up. So I think that what will end up happening, whether this is what she's shooting for or not, is she will end up trying to attract the voters who basically agree much more with Bernie Sanders than they do with, say, Joe Biden, but who, for whatever reason, either because they have sore feelings about 2016 or they are wary of, of supporting someone who they believe is a self-described socialist or uh, doesn't want a septuagenarian white guy to be president, that maybe she can kind of occupy that space and present herself as a serious progressive who is not you know, who's basically an outsider, even though she's been in the Senate, and who will take on big ideas, but I guess just isn't Bernie Sanders. And, you know, it's funny because she, a lot of people were urging her to run in 2016, and, and we wrote, I wrote a cover story for The Nation then, too, about the effort to draft her into the presidency. And it seemed like she would be the only one, or the only viable one, to, to challenge Hillary Clinton. It, we had a kind of a footnote in that story, which looks silly in retrospect, that said, like, well, there's really no other serious candidates like Martin O'Malley's out there, but no one's going to vote for him. And there's some rumors Bernie, this guy Bernie Sanders may run, but <laughs> you know it's not likely he'll mount a serious wow. campaign. Well, he sure did, but you wonder what would have happened if Warren got into the race early. Would Bernie still have gotten in? Would he have attracted as much attention if he did? Uh, and just how history might look different if, if she had decided to hop in there in 2016. Well, would you say she is more interested in the economy and less interested in climate change than Bernie? You know, I, I'm not sure that's totally true. I, I think they both have a very strong economic focus. And I think though they both have come to support the Green New Deal and, and things like that, they're not career kind of climate hawks. I mean, I'm sure that you can find statements from both of them going back talking about the urgency of climate change. But you know what I mean in terms of the way that Warren is a specialist and known for kind of going after Wall Street, which is her, her life experience and her, her legal training and so on. It's just not the same way about climate. And I'm not sure who does fit that bill. I think it's actually kind of a big problem in the Democratic primary that there isn't, as far as we can see yet, a serious candidate who is kind of like single issue on climate and, and has been there for a while. The Boston Globe ran a famous or infamous editorial not long ago titled Senator Warren Don't Run. They're a liberal Democratic newspaper. They support her on all the issues, but they pointed out that when she ran for re-election to the Senate in Massachusetts last year, she did not really improve on Hillary Clinton's vote in the state. They both got about 60%. That's a lot, of course, for most places, uh, but the paper says that the winning Democrat in 2020 will have to win over some of the Trump supporters and non-voters from 2016 will have to do better than Hillary, especially in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. And a person from Massachusetts uh, is not going to be able to do that. Do you think that's a serious problem for her, for us? Well, I think she takes it a little bit seriously. I mean, because if you looked at her announcement speech, though, she did give it in Massachusetts because naturally she's a senator from there. She really kind of played up 
her upbringing, which was in a, in a rural community in Oklahoma. You know, I think that, not that there's necessarily correlation, but you can look back all, you know, and everyone says, oh, John Kerry and Dukakis and another Mitt Romney. People from Massachusetts don't tend to right. fare particularly well in presidential races, but I'm not sure what, the, what that there's a real correlation there. I think in particular, what she is trying to pitch herself as as kind of a Wall Street reformer and someone who will take on the financial sector might actually play pretty well in places like Ohio, Pennsylvania. We'll have to see because her her campaign isn't really in full swing, particularly in those places yet. But if you look back historically, Obama clobbered Romney in a lot of those places. And I think in big part, that was because Republicans screwed up pretty big. They had they had one job after the the financial crisis, after Wall Street had ruined everything, which was do not run a guy from Wall Street in the first election after that really happened. Well, they, they ran Mitt Romney and he got his clock cleaned. I think that in a lot of places in the Midwest, if Warren or whoever the nominee is can successfully convince people that Donald Trump is a phony populist who has filled up his cabinet with Wall Street bankers and, and big polluters and who's working on behalf of the 1%, that that person, whether it's Warren or anyone else, can actually do pretty well in those communities. I mean, Trump successfully advanced the argument, and it was basically a dishonest argument, but he successfully advanced the argument that he was looking out for the little guy and he was going to you know, bust up the trade deals and kick out the immigrants. And, and Hillary, of course, was on the side of the special interests and the big bankers and so on. So I think whoever, whether it's Warren or anyone else, will be well suited with that strategy. And I think that she is one of the ones who's, who's pretty uniquely suited to make it. George Zernick, his article on Elizabeth Warren is the cover story in the new issue of The Nation magazine. Thank you, George. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. What is to be done about a president who fills us with dread and rage? Michael Walzer says it's time for political action, for commitment and participation in movement politics. He served as co-editor of Dissent Magazine for more than three decades. He's also written for The New Republic, The New York Review, and recently for The Nation. He's Professor Emeritus at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton. He's written many books, recently A Foreign Policy for the Left. We talked about it here not long ago. And his new book is titled Political Action, A Practical Guide to Movement Politics. He's also an old teacher of mine and an old friend. Michael, welcome back. Thank you. Well, what is to be done, of course, is a classic question on the left. You provided... Your answer when you wrote this book, that was in 1971, the dark days when Nixon was president and the war in Vietnam seemed like it would never end. Now that book has been republished by New York Review Classics, so I guess that makes it official. The book is a classic. Yes, along with a few hundred other (laughs) classics. Okay. (laughs) But 1971 and 2019 are obviously different, but... There are some similarities, at least for people on the left. Let's talk about that. 
Well, the crucial similarity is that we need to get off our backsides and into the streets, and we need to organize, we need to mobilize, we need to demonstrate, we need to do all of the things that um, some, that political the word political action defines. I actually wrote in the aftermath of the civil rights movement and the and the anti-war movement. In a moment when we weren't sure what to do, 70 and 71 was a time of when people on the left were, were confused about what to do. We thought we couldn't have a worse president than Nixon. We, we thought that again with Reagan. We thought that again with the second Bush. And now we know. <laughs> we know. <laughs> it, it didn't feel at that moment in 70, 71, it didn't feel like it feels now. The, the threat to American democracy seems much, much greater today than any time in my, in my lifetime. And that makes it especially important to, to think about ways to think about ways to, to organize. Um, and a lot of people are doing that. The resistance has many, many elements. Indivisible is very important. The women's march is very important. The, Black Lives Matter is very important. There is a lot going on, and we need to talk about it, and we need to, to make it much bigger. Movement politics is what you recommend. That sounds great. But you say most people are innocent of the complications of political life. I'm quoting, they are unaware of the personal risks involved. What are the complications and the risks? You know, what, what I found in, 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 in the 60s, was people join movements like um, the civil rights. We were picketing Woolworths in Cambridge, or we were knocking on doors um, against the, the war. People new to politics find the hostility they encounter enormously difficult, surprising. They are surprised. Politics is, a, is a contentious, is adversarial. You march on a picket line and people insult you in, in, in ways you'd never heard yourself talked about like that. <laughs> okay. And that takes getting used to and we need you need to you need to prepare people for that and you need to help them get through the first the the first response. And then as we all know, anyone who has a history in left politics knows that conventional politics attracts conventional people and unconventional politics attracts unconventional people and you have to you have to deal with obsessives and, and, and zealots and crackpots who are good people, all of them, <laughs> and somehow have to be included, but also um, brought into um, accord with other people who, who, who are not crackpots or obsessives or zealots. There's a lot of diplomacy involved in politics, which I think also people don't don't understand. So there's the hostility, there's the zealotry, and then there's the apathy, the ignorance, and the not caring, and that's also surprising. Yes, yes. And uh, every political movement is also an educational movement. That's why you draft leaflets 
you you write pamphlets, you you write statements that people can sign on to. You argue about what should be on the signs that you carry at a at a demonstration, and all that is educational. You you are that's what the union movement used to do for for millions and millions of American workers. Um, movements are are educational, and they produce political activists, even minimally political voters, who are much more intelligent because of where they're coming from. You say in the book Political Action, there are only two kinds of politics. There's pressure politics around issues and electoral politics around candidates. We can try to change the policies or we can try to change the people who make the policies. Let's talk about our situation right now when everyone is looking at the candidates in the Democratic primaries. You can join the Bernie campaign or the Elizabeth Warren campaign or the Kamala Harris campaign, but that doesn't seem like the same thing as movement politics and community organizations around issues, although the Bernie campaign in 2016 looked and felt a lot like a movement. But is working in presidential primary campaigns what you have in mind right now? Um, it's important that some people do that. I'm, I am a strong believer in a division of labor okay. on the left, but um, it's also important that people pick issues and organize around particular issues, and then you can endorse a candidate who who will tell you that he's going to support you on that issue, and then if he wins, you have to continue. You have to keep the pressure on him because he's unlikely to do everything that he promised to do. So you need you need a movement focused on student debt, you need a movement focused on police brutality, you need a movement focused on health care or women's rights or you you need movements that, that that focus attention and and mobilize support so that you can tell a candidate we can deliver votes to you, we can deliver workers for you if you commit yourself on this issue, and remember, once you win, we won't let up the pressure. Well, of course, the big issue right now on the left is the Green New Deal, and what makes it so radical is the way it combines the issues. The Green New Deal, people argue that the way to win people to support action to reduce greenhouse gas emissions is to mobilize people to support jobs programs, health programs, education programs, and we have to do it all. We have to do it all at once, and we have to do it all right now. Uh, Mainstream people, uh, centrist liberals, object, and they say, let's focus on reducing carbon in the atmosphere. That's number one. That will be hard enough. I guess you could call this a choice between multi-issue politics and single-issue politics. Uh, how do we decide? How do you decide? Well, look, political parties are by definition multi-issue. They have to bring people together who are focused on, engaged with very, very different issues, who, people who have different interests. The party has to bring them together and has to produce a, a, a program. And I guess that's what the Green New Deal people who are Democrats are are trying to do. I worry about dispersing our energies, so I'm 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 not sure. 
I, I like the people who are pushing the Green New Deal. Um, I'm not sure this is the the best strategy. Well, let me shift focus here to another thing you take up in your book, Political Action, meetings. Doing politics, first of all, means going to meetings. Tell us what makes for a good meeting and, and why so many are not good. You know, we on on the left, we have we, we always have a problem of the activists, the militants, mostly young people who have a lot of time on their hands and who are eager and who, who know that they are absolutely necessary to the cause. And then the community people, as we used to call them, that we aim to mobilize and bring in who have families and jobs and not a lot of time. And they will come to a meeting and then miss a meeting, or they'll come to a meeting and leave early. And the militants will stay and talk and talk and talk and pass the resolutions at the end when a lot of the people have left. Um, and that's always a problem. And so we need to devise organizational structures that, that, that make room for full-scale participation, but also make room for partial participation. and. It involves some forms of accountability, forms of representation, and that's it's very, very important to to, to find a way to sustain the, the the energy and the commitment of people who have a lot of time and to hold on to the people who don't have a lot of time. Well, one of the keys to local work, of course, is canvassing. Talking to people face-to-face is probably the best way to get the sympathetic ones to take action and the apathetic ones to change their minds and the ignorant to find out what's happening. But canvassing is hard. There are many pitfalls. What have you learned about canvassing? Well, I've learned what you just said, that it is absolutely necessary and that the social media have not made it unnecessary. Let's talk also about demonstrating, another thing that movements and activists do. You say demonstrations don't always require large numbers of people. Your demonstration doesn't have to equal the Women's March the day after Trump's inauguration. But wouldn't it be better if it did? Oh, yes. I mean, One of the reasons for recruiting and mobilizing is to demonstrate. You want to demonstrate your strength. And the strength, the strength of the right is in money, but the strength of the left is always in numbers. And we, yes, you need numbers. But the numbers, in, in the, when we were picketing Woolworth stores, our big achievement, which we, which we thought of as a demonstration, at, at the height we were picketing 40 Woolworth stores while the kids in the South were sitting in at Woolworth lunch counters. 40 Woolworth stores with maybe 20 people at each picket line. That's 800 people. It's not an enormous number, but to get 800 people to come to a picket line, and they were often taunted and insulted and harassed, to get 800, that's a demonstration of strength. And it, 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 it was in our terms for our kind of movement. It was a big demonstration. We've only got a minute or two left. Do you have any last words for us? Well, my last words, um, and I'm speaking now as, a, as a, 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 an old person who doesn't have the energy he had 50 years ago, I think it is absolutely important, more important than it has ever been in my lifetime, that large numbers of American citizens 
commit themselves to the act of political work, to the act of protest, to the act of constitutional defense, democratic defense. I, I would love to go on the offensive, and I hope we do soon, but my first worry right now is we, we can't lose. We have a lot of lost ground to make up. We have a lot of principles under threat to defend, and we've, we've got to go to work. We've got to go to work. Michael Walzer's new book is Political Action, a Practical Guide to Movement Politics. It's an invitation to commitment and participation. I wrote the introduction. Michael, thank you for this book, and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, and our producer, Renee Reynolds. As always, we thank Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of this show or of any of our recent shows, listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.